Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Zoe Norvell has been designing book covers professionally since 2011 and has designed nearly 700 covers to date. Zoe started her career in New York City as an in-house designer at Simon & Schuster and then moved over to Penguin Random House. In 2015, she began freelancing full-time. Today, Zoe is based in her hometown of Washington, D.C., and when not global pandemic times, loves to travel and will occasionally bring work with her on the road. Zoe recently launched INeedABookInterior.com, which she describes as a small company that does one thing really well, creating impeccable book interiors while making the process super simple for clients. As an aside, I can concur. That's exactly what she does. Uh, Zoe, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you, James. It's so good to finally connect not on email. Yes, we've done two books completely by email with not one real-time discussion. That's how easy you are to work with. Um, okay. So before I dive into the complex process of designing a book, what are some of the books you enjoyed as a child that have stood the test of time from a design perspective? I love this question. Immediately, the first thing that comes to mind is anything by Shel Silverstein. You know, his books were for kids, but they weren't filled with colorful illustrations. They were just one color books. And I feel like everyone can imagine a certain page from one of his books, the way that the lines were applied on the page and played around with the white space and played around with the rectangle of the page. It, it was just like so forward thinking. So yeah, where the sidewalk ends or the missing piece, that's what really comes to mind for me. Oh, that's such a good choice. They're so iconic, timeless, so and there's iconic, no, you yeah. don't need to redesign them. Like they're done. That no, Those yeah. books, they're finished. There's no version two or upgrade required. That's so cool. Very true. So there's a well-worn expression to never judge a book by its cover. I'm sure you've had this question before, but I have to ask. Uh, <laughs> but I believe book covers are critically important to set the tone of a book and to signal to the reader the care taken in developing the book. And to expand on that personally, when I go to a bookstore and I'm looking, which I love doing, and I look through books, if there wasn't effort put in the book cover, I really question what I'm what I'm going to read. So what's your take on that expression? Yeah, you know, I think that anytime someone uses that expression, they're pretty much always referring to anything other than a book. They're right. talking about yes. a person or an experience they had, but no one ever uses that expression as it relates to a book. Um, I think everyone depends on their own impressions of what book covers mean to them in selecting a book. And, you know, if you went to a bookstore and bought a, what you thought was a thriller because it had dark shadowy trees on it and you got home and it was an absolute romance from the 1600s, you'd be really pissed. You'd be like, <laughs> why did someone fool me into buying this book? So yeah, we, we all have to judge books by their, covers and and it, it's 
it's to our advantage that we do. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, because a book is a, is a serious investment of time. So you want to make sure that time is the most precious thing we have. So yes, yeah. I, I think books or covers are incredibly important. So I chose to self-publish my first and upcoming book for a variety of reasons, both of which you designed, both the cover and interiors, which gave me tremendous control over the process. I was also inundated with countless decisions and things I didn't know anything about. Break down how you approach simplifying the complex design process for clients without sacrificing the quality of the product. Sure. So as it relates to book covers, um, the first thing I do is send my client, whether it's an author or a publisher, a really simple one page PDF that has everything that I need from you to design the book cover. And um, one of those things is the trim size. It's, it's really important to me that when I start off designing, it's the right dimension. And some people, particularly with authors, not so much the publishers, maybe they haven't thought about the trim size yet. Mm -hmm. so, so this forces them, okay, we're going to start thinking about this book as a physical object. So do your research and figure out what the trim size is, and then I'll start designing, you know? So I need the trim size. I need all the text that's going to be on the cover. The worst thing ever is getting like a giant quote added on at the last minute where are we going to fit this quote it's really great to have all the text in the beginning um the look and feel of your book usually i just ask people to give me words mm -hmm. do you want this to be bold or quiet do you want this to be modern or timeless you know it's just one word that i think we can all kind of agree that on how that looks to us um i need to know the client's stock budget because the artwork that i use to create the cover is the the budget itself is super important sometimes people haven't thought about that either um so i get all of this information from the client and then and i also need uh the work itself so i can read the manuscript and get my own take on the work and then i go to work and within two weeks, I'll come back to the client with a PDF um, of anywhere between, depending on their budget for the design work, anywhere from three cover options to, for some of my bigger New York City clients, 12, 14 options. Mm -hmm. And then the conversation really kind of forms. I mean, the best case scenario is, is you knock it out of the park in round one, and maybe the tweaks are as small as, can you make this word red instead of blue. Um, sometimes none of it works and I don't take it personally because that happens. And then, but it really informs the, the second round. Sometimes the first round creates a whole conversation between the author, the editor, the publisher. And through that conversation comes a completely new direction that I'm given. Um, but the, the first round is really important both to for me to get it right for the client to see for the first time what they thought they wanted how do we want to market this book and then from there it's a bunch of minor tweaks or it's a complete redo and we just mm. we keep going at it uh, you mentioned that you you do look at the manuscript or the text too what role does that play in addition to um the design brief other input you got from the the art director or, or author um so if it's a non-fiction i don't go so heavily into the manuscript 
So let's take Malcolm Gladwell, for, for example. You know, his, all of his books can really be dumbed down to one sentence sometimes. And that's the essence of what he's trying to say in 300 pages. And that's what we need to put on the cover. Mm-hmm. So I don't need to read every single page, all of, you know, the examples that he's giving to reinforce the point he's making. I don't need to read the whole thing to figure out what goes on the cover. When it's a fiction, things are very different. Um, Maybe something that happens in the end is super important and that defines the cover. Maybe the first half of the book takes place in New York City and the second half takes place in a cabin. Which which one do we want to put on the cover? Do we want to put neither on the cover? Um, What do the characters look like? What is what is the feeling of the book? Maybe it's maybe the cover doesn't have anything to do with the setting. Maybe it's all about the feeling. Maybe the voice of the character changes by the by the end. So I rely heavily on the manuscript when it's fiction. Um, I like to say I read the manuscript as quickly as you would if you were prepping for a college test and you <laughs> forgot to read that semester's book and you're, you've got the test the next day. I, I mean, I don't, I don't have time to just right. make a cup of tea and cozy up in a chair and read the whole thing. I am reading for work and time is of the essence. Um, but I absolutely depend on the manuscript when it comes to certain genres. That, that's fascinating. So for my uh, upcoming book, which you designed, Portraits of Red and Gray, you found an extraordinary lithograph for the art cover, cover art. What is your approach to finding assets used in the book design? I know I'm seeing the tip of the design iceberg when you send me options to consider. You've already looked through hundreds of things, presumably. What happens behind the scenes before the client sees the design drafts? Yeah, um, the first filter that I use that determines where I look for stock images um, is actually the client's budget. So that might come as a surprise to people, but the types of everything that we put on a cover has to be paid for and vetted for copyright purposes. So there's been times when an author has sent me a photo they found on Instagram. Hi, I'd like to use this for my cover. (laughs) Well, that's not going to happen, but we can find a similar photo, you know? Um, So there's all these stock websites and they vary in price. And so... I'm gonna, I know which ones I'm going to look at or consider based on how much the client is able to spend on a cover. I have clients all over the map. Um, I have a client in Canada and their stock budget is zero. And so I look on museum archive websites, um, Library of Congress, the New York Public Library has an archive, anything that is copyright free um, there's also a website you and I have both used, unsplash.com. It's fairly new. I, th- I think it's also a Canadian company, actually. Um, and they have just high-res contemporary photography that's totally free. So that's a great resource as well. Um, once I know the client's budget, I start looking at the various stock websites. Now, for your book, um, since it, the, your second book, since it was poetry and uh, the main poem took place in Russia, we talked about wanting to have something with the setting relating to Russia there. And because it was poetry, I immediately wanted it to be an artwork 
or a drawing, but not a photograph. Mm -hmm. That just didn't feel right at all um, for a poetry book. So I went to Bridgman, dot uh, com which is kind of the all-inclusive like premier stock resource that has paintings paintings you see in museums they have all the rights to all of these artworks uh, and i found that lithograph and it was perfect yes. and i noticed <laughs> that it was produced the same year that you went amazing to totally amazing I, meant to be <laughs> i was so excited <laughs> And I was crossing my fingers that that would be the cover that you chose, and, and it was. So that was really cool. Oh, awesome. So you divine, designed both covers and book interiors. How do you approach connecting the cover and interior designs? Um, the simplest answer is I take the font, the dominant font used on the cover, and I try to figure out ways that I can splash it on to the interior. So maybe it's... Um, with the chapter dividers or it's if the book is separated into part one part two i repeat the font from the front into the chapter breaks or the part breaks um if say the typography on the front is all right justified on the cover then let's justify the chapter titles on the inside mm -hmm. um for the body copy i really don't try to get too crazy there it should just be an enjoyable reading experience the only place that i take liberties is with chapter titles page numbers the page labels um section breaks and the front matter which is the half title page the title page the dedication that kind of thing um another fun way to bring the cover onto the interior is with whether or not your book some books have this, some don't, but with paragraph breaks. So sometimes it's just the simplest option is those three dots. Um, or you can have a dingbat or a symbol. Um, so I did Sarah Grand's latest novel, and snakes are really important in her book. So every paragraph break, we have this little snake mm. icon, and it's perfect. And the snake didn't appear on the cover, but it's it's important for the book. So that was that was just a really nice touch that we found. Very cool. So when interviewing uh, copy editor Brittany Smale in an earlier episode last year, mm -hmm. I asked if she is able to read a book without being distracted by the editing. And she said she does think about it. And uh, when you're reading a book, are you admiring or critiquing or distracted by the design? What have you learned from other designers? Yeah, I am sometimes critiquing the interior pages. Um, so sometimes if I see a bad break, uh, which is maybe there's a long paragraph and then the very last line of that paragraph is a single word. Mm. In typesetting, we would consider that a bad break. And I go crazy finding all of those before I send them to my clients. Like it's my responsibility as the type editor to find them. So sometimes when I'm reading a book put out by one of the top publishers in Manhattan and I see one of those, I'm like, hey, why did they get away with that? But I'm driving myself crazy looking for these. So I do sometimes uh, critique the insides, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the two books you've designed for me were both poetry. What are the challenges specific to the form of the book, whether it's poetry or prose, a business book, an art book, when going through the design process? With poetry, it's definitely the weird stanzas. Um, there's definitely a lot of back and forth between me and 
the poet to figure out the, you know, I mean, with poetry, it's, it really comes down to the program it was written in and then how that's translating to the InDesign document. So for example, with you wrote yours on Google doc that you shared with me and you had used the tab key to tab things over. Mm. But when I'm moving it into InDesign, I'm probably changing the font. So is the tabs that you used in your Google document, the same width as the tabs in InDesign, not always. So it's, yeah, it's making sure that everything's lining up the same. Um, with a business book, the thing that's tricky about those is that there's so many different levels of hierarchy. Mm. So you really need to make sure that you know what the hierarchy is, that the hierarchy is clear to the reader and makes sense. So there's the chapter title, the biggest header, subheader, there's a list, someone is quoted, the quote has to be offset, maybe the quote is in a box. There, Then there's a subhead to the subhead. So getting very orderly with, with the business books so that as the reader, they know, okay, this is the start of a new section, or no, this is carrying on the same idea. This is still part of that initial header from two pages ago. I mean, these are things we just absorb when we're reading. It shouldn't be something we really think about, but that's all due to the proper typesetting. Yeah, I agree. Well, eBooks have carved out a niche, but have not taken over the book industry, which I'm happy about. I like eBooks for mm -hmm. some things and not for others. Print books are very much alive and well. As a self-published author, it is a thrill to hold a galley proof of my book in my hands. I'm sure that applies to any author to crack the cover and flip the pages for the first time. Uh, why do you think the physical form of a book has longevity when digital media has taken over pretty much every other field? I think it's because books are so personal. It's something we do with ourselves. It's not really meant to be shared. You know, mm. I think about how Instagram has taken over everyone's life. We take a picture, we immediately blast it out to thousands of friends. Or, you know, same with Twitter. It's such an effective way to get an idea out quickly. But the act of reading is so private. It's really not meant to be shared and duplicated a hundred times. Um, and so we don't need to digitize the thing you're reading just to make, it doesn't make your experience any better. Um, so the different forms that are available for books, um, ebooks, audibles, and the print form, they're all perfect for different people at different times. Personally, I love listening to audible books at night because my light is off and I can set it to that timer and it goes off like right as I'm drifting off to sleep. So that's amazing. But I don't know anyone who wants to go to the beach and read on their phone. I think everyone wants to go to the beach or get on a plane with a paperback. Um, and I also think that books will be here forever because they hold so much weight in society. You know, mm -hmm. you walk into a person's home and you see their bookshelf and you immediately know so much about them. You know their passions, you know their political affiliations, and books are such a conversation starter. You see a certain spine on the shelf and you're like, oh, I read that. Um, did you like it? And we don't have, we lose those moments with ebooks and audible books and 
you know, personally, I love seeing a stack of books that I've read over the past year or maybe the past decade. And I see like all those physical pages, like pages stacked on top of each other. I am a huge fan of Carl uh, Ovechnaus card. And when I see his, um, my struggle all lined up, I'm like, did I really read all of those books twice and it's like yeah i did and you just you don't have that with uh, the other forms very cool love that answer so for students just a couple more things for students aspiring to build a career in book design what role has your education and design at the pratt institute played in your career and what role did internships and practical experience play um personally my experience at pratt was so important to everything else that happened after that I feel that everything in my career was like a domino effect. Um, I know some career coaches kind of promote this, like it's called like a lily pad approach to your career. You kind of hop around from one thing to another. That's great. For me, it was a domino effect. My experience at Pratt led to my internship with Rodrigo Corral, which He's a hugely prolific um, book cover designer and also the art director at FSG. That led to my first job at Simon & Schuster. I, you know, having worked with Rodrigo really shaped me and um, improved my design sense and also gave me clout when I walked into that interview for Simon & Schuster fresh out of school. My experience at Simon & Schuster was my entry into the New York City publishing scene. And then that led directly into my Penguin Random House experience. Um, So with Pratt, I would say that you, as a designer, it was, it was a great experience for so many reasons, but I'll just circle in on this one thing, which is it got you used to getting critiqued about your work. Um, every single assignment I had, we would come in, everyone would pin their work up on the walls. We would spend two, three hours talking about your work and critiquing others and hearing feedback and hearing critique about your own. That type of experience does not end with art school. That type of experience is 100% brought into the real world. So if you aren't used to it after four years of art school, watch out <laughs> when, you know, cause next step is you have to present your work to the publisher of a major business imprint at Penguin, who's been doing this for 30 years and he's going to have some feedback for you. You know, um, I think that kids that are looking to getting into this work could absolutely learn how to use the programs outside of a formal education. I didn't really learn how to use the programs, Adobe programs at school. I already knew how, and I'm still learning how to use them. I, I use things like lynda.com and YouTube when I want to brush up on things, but shaping you as a designer, my four years at Pratt were incomparable. You successfully transitioned from being a freelancer over a decade ago and now have founded a small business. What advice do you have for designers who are thinking of heading out on their own 
what are the advantages and disadvantages of being a freelancer? Okay, advice for people who want to go out on their own. Um, you can think about doing it for a very long time. It's not going to make a difference. When you do it, you just got to do it. If you want to go out on your own, go out on your own. It's just, it's scary. It takes confidence. It takes just jumping off the edge. Um, it's not a forever decision. You can always go back to a company. Um, I was working at Penguin and thinking about leaving and going freelance, which I eventually did. And, um, amazing, amazing book cover designer, Lynn Buckley, a good friend of mine from there. She had gone freelance and came back to Penguin, uh, you know, as a, an associate art director. I mean, she was doing great as a freelancer and her star was just shining super bright and she, she always went back. So you always have that option. Um, but I would say you just, you just have to do it. It's, it's scary and you could talk yourself out of it a million different ways. But if you've been thinking about it and you want it, just, I always say, make the world work for you rather than working mm -hmm. for the world. That's my approach to everything. Um, and the advantages and disadvantages of being a freelancer. Personally, I think the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. I'm assuming so since you've been doing it for so long. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why I'm still doing it. Um, advantages. So you mentioned uh, traveling before, um, I, a year before the pandemic hit, I took my laptop and hit the road for four months and not a single client ever complained or thought that they were getting a raw deal. I still worked the same number of hours. I was just working from a hostel in Nicaragua. So that's a huge advantage. Um, the biggest difference for me is the ability to turn off email at certain times. Mm -hmm. I find that it is critical that I get into a flow when I'm designing. And I was not able to do that when I was working in house because I was constantly getting interrupted by the necessary things that people needed to interrupt me with, you know? Um, so just the ability to answer emails for one or two hours with my coffee in the morning and then close Gmail and say, I'm going to design this for the next five hours and, and then check my email again in the afternoon. That is just, it's not just like a blessing. It's just, I think it's so important to the way that I work and it, and it gives me better work when I get into that flow. And it's, and it's not so disruptive. Yeah, no, the, your idea of flow for writing, yeah. most of what I've, I've written has been written after 11 p.m. where I actually, yeah. for the longest time I wrote on pen and paper, almost like a religious thing. And then, uh, you know, the quietest time where no one's interrupting me is like when I'm, and I'm kind of a night owl anyway. So I just get my phone, open up <laughs> Google Docs, and just start writing. And then the benefit for me, first of all, I get into that sense of flow, like where you get time under, uninterrupted. And then also um, as a poet, it's interesting. The best way to start a poem is just to write and not think about the form or structure or anything that comes later, right? And if I'm doing Google Docs, it's too hard to format it. So I just focus on the words. So that that's sort of a side benefit anyway. Yeah. All right. So finally, share a bit more about uh, your new company and the services you provide and how publishers and authors can contact So I've been doing book interiors for a little over a year. 
and I realized there's a lot of demand for it. There's also a lot of competition out there. There's a lot of companies that do typesetting. Um, I think what I'm offering with this new company is just a super streamlined process and also an extremely transparent pricing model. So I have these packages that I'm gonna um, introduce in about a week and it's gonna outline everything that's included or not included in the package. So there's no surprises when you're working with us of what this should cost or, or if a change later on is going to be an extra fee or not. Um, but I've got close to a hundred templates for the clients to choose from. They can all be customized in different ways, depending on the package that you choose. And you give me your manuscript and we lay it out really quickly, send it back and that starts the editing process and the whole thing is just really simple and streamlined and takes all the headache out for for the client you know the process of writing a book is i've never done it but i've talked to a lot of people that have sounds like an incredibly personal process and as far as i know there is no software out there that will take your manuscript and just spit out a book with all of the things that is needed for a book to become a book. You know, the page numbers, the page labels, the chapter breaks, the chapter openers. And again, like I was saying with the business books, if it's a business books, the 10 different tiers of hierarchy, it really is. Typesetting is also a human personal process hasn't been automated. Let's see if I'm eating these words in 50 years. I don't think I will be. It's an incredibly personal endeavor that we take on to take your manuscript and make it into a book in the sense that we all recognize a book to be. This linear thing with pages, with labels that we depend on to know where we're at and what type of book we're digesting. Um, I'm really excited about it. It's something I'm doing in addition to cover design, but it's something I realized that I do really well and I've created a process that's just very streamlined. So it's something I'll be doing in tandem with my cover design work, uh, but it's a company that I hope to build over the next few years. That's great. And uh, just from additional context and a vote of endorsement uh, for what Zoe does. So when I was looking at self-publishing my first book, Canvas, um, you know, I'm pretty agile with technology. So I thought, okay, I'll just get over to InDesign, figure it out, do it myself. And I quickly decided the learning curve is ridiculously steep just to use the software. And then I was very concerned I would end up with a generic book if I went with either templates or tried to do it myself. And I wanted a piece of art that I could, that would hold, because books are so permanent and permanence is why I was doing the project in the first place. Right. And uh, so for, for book designers out there or for, for self-published authors like myself, uh, publishers I think would already do this by instinct uh, or by process. If you have the means to do so, 
you will get so much more from your project if you're able to work with the designer. There's the expertise they bring to the table. So that's my big fat endorsement for the wonderful work that you did. And just you, you reduce stress. Like there's a lot of stress with publishing a book. You completely diminish the stress on oh, all the good. That's great. Yeah, that's no, I mean, great. That, that is like that's super valuable. So I want to thank you so much, Zoe, for taking time out of your very busy schedule to share thank your story you. with the Beulah Swings Poetry Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It was fun. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.